0: i like you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. This morning we're going to be reading verses 1 through 16. So they're picking up in verse 1. The author of this great letter writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Let brotherly love continue. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, and today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Uh, We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. We have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Please make us a people who come in and go out this morning, seeking the city to come more urgently, more ardently than we have ever before. It will have many great practical implications for our lives at present. And so please do it for your own glory and pour out the Spirit even now upon the teaching of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So as you just heard in that text, the city of man uh, can be quite a dangerous place for those determined to live as native to the city of God. For keeping to the word of Christ, uh, this world is not shy about holding out the wood and the nails. Christianity, rightly applied, will then demand a will to embrace the cross, a will held fast by faith in the prospect of the city of God. And so where you sit this morning, where we sit today, how great is that city to you? It's a little bit odd here, I think, but I, I immediately thought of Job uh, 26, 14, it's just me. If only for the imagery, uh, Job was a man who suffered, and why did he suffer? He suffered because he was a righteous man. He was God's man, and if you recall what plagued Job most was the seeming distance between he and the God that he loved. He knew all kinds of things about God, and yet in the school of suffering he was learning as in the verse 2614 how small a whisper he actually did know of him there were depths of god and there were depths of need that only job's cross could unearth and expose but now where Christianity is a rather comfortable thing, how easy it is to live contentedly with the whisper. Where you have no need to endure, what need have we to dig deep? What need have we to avail ourselves, as it says later in that chapter of Job, to hear the thunder of his voice? Right? Comforts, which we have many of them, against the cross, tempt to a kind of callousness that Christ never intended us to know. And to the degree that we do know them, we are the worst for it. Now beloved, we can't forget that while the cross came at the end of Christ's life for us, He puts it forward at the start of our lives for Him. Take up your cross and follow me. And some reason is that there might be a real urgency about us to collect as much depth as we can for standing unshaken with Christ in this world. And this week I was brought by this text to ask myself, how much, how much have I actually collected on the city of God? Because when it comes to city life, this author makes the city itself a dominant stake in the ground of our enduring faithfulness. Few in the Bible are so fixated upon the city of God as the author of Hebrews was and is. Truly, heaven was in Him before He was in it. And that is what He and I and Christ want for us today is this increasing devotion to, seeking after, and use Of the city to come. Jesus did not leave us to the cross without a home. But on his way to his own cross. You remember he told us. I go to prepare a place for you. And what a place it is. And Christ came to make that place loud. And clear. So that we don't need to live in the whisper of God. Of it. So, what we want to do this morning is begin to amplify it for every heart. There is first, starting in verse one, a series of instructions for Christian living. We'll just call it city life for city folk faithfulness to Christ for the people of God. And while this section, uh, typically, you guys know me well enough by now to know this would be a, a whole sermon. Uh, it's not going to be the whole of the sermon. It's just going to be uh, a section here. I'll be more pointed with it. Uh, Jonathan Edwards wrote that heaven was a world of love. And so at the head here, you see verse 1, that the heaven-bound community of Christ is to be marked by what? Love for one another. Nothing is to be bigger with us than brotherly Love, so that there's a continuance of it. You see what he says? He says, let brotherly love continue, implying there will be a number of occasions for a variety of reasons to feel like discontinuing love. And we're to hold the line right there. And that and as we hold that line by Christ and cross and city, it will be plain how different we are from others who know very little if anything any more about enduring self-sacrifice gleefully acting at cost to self readily overlooking offenses kindly putting away all pettiness, humbly making amends and forgiving one another, steadily gazing, as it were, above this world to the tie that binds us together forever, and that is the love of God in Christ. By it and the Spirit's help, we will find a winning motivation to guard this mark, this continuum of brotherly love with all our hearts. And next you see verse 2. Not only will we have this continuing love, this continuing brotherly love for one another, but will be actively hospitable. And not only to one another, but even, as he says, to strangers. And this only makes sense because, after all, you and I were total strangers to God when, through Christ, He invited us in as His own family to the banquet of eternal salvation. And what's more... As we have been saved and yet are not at home, uh, we were made strangers to this world. You remember this from our time in 1 Peter? What are we called? We're called elect what? Exiles and sojourners. We're strangers. That's us. And as it is, God's telling us that we're to have a heart to host the stranger, the outsider. And yes, we are to continue on, go on majoring in hospitality to one another also. This is not an either or. It is a a both and. It seems that God wants us to have a revolving door in our house. He wants us to have an open house, an open table, a convictional mind, but an open heart. And for motive beyond the cross to be hospitable in this way, who knows Maybe you'll entertain an angel or two while you're at it. Or at least, God means to bless the host that bears his heart. Do not neglect hospitality to strangers. See them here on Lord's Day mornings. See them out there throughout the week. See them all about you, and however you know, prepared or <laughs> unprepared you may be to have them in, Do it. Bite the bullet and invite them to table. As citizens of heaven, let's make it an intentional aspect of our life and ministry to be hospitable. Next you see verse 3. That we're to keep compassion for members of our body. And So we have love and we have hospitality and now we have compassion for members of our body who are in any respect suffering for Christ. And here, you'll see uh, that that respect is what? It's prison. <laughs> okay. but this isn't just any old uh, prison ministry. Uh, it's not an evangelistic visitation of traditionally incriminated inmates. Uh, this is members of a local church who are in prison or are otherwise being mistreated specifically for their faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, it's a call to those who are not yet suffering in that way to yet identify with their spiritual family in chains. Talk about a bond. It put a target on their back to do what he's calling them to do here. It put them and their families in danger. It identified them as the very ones that the state wanted to persecute and yet so great was to be their solidarity and concern for one another and chapter 10 verse 34 their faith in a better and abiding world that they freely and joyfully took care at all cost of the bruised and battered among them quickly then i need to know how many of you are coming to care for me and others in prison if and when in due time the state is hunting down any abiding remnant of biblical Christianity. Thank you. One taker. The question exposes what we believe about the body of Christ. And it exposes what we believe about the city of Christ. As will the actionable remembrance of all of our sick, we have many right now, all of our needy, all of our anxious, all of our marginalized, all of our ridiculed, all of our folks who are in any way tried and troubled. So love, hospitality, compassion, and now of course, obviously, marriage. Right? He goes from our union together as a body in Christ to the union of one man and one woman. That's the Connection here, and I'll tell you, little will be more of above on earth than verse four, a universally high regard for the lifelong one flesh union instituted by God to the glory of Jesus. There's no need really to talk about the culture on marriage. The church's practice of marriage uh, speaks for itself. Sadly, the two are virtually indistinct from one another. But at least the world carries no profession of the Gospel. And see, it wasn't any less of a concern then as it is a concern today. It's in our ancient text 2,000 years ago for a reason. The reason at the spiritual level is that Satan hates what images Christ's love for his bride. It makes his stomach Turn and His only relief then is to try by all means to disfigure and destroy what does this, just like He did in the garden. So, if you profess Christ this morning, it is incumbent upon you to be watchful and opposed to anything in you or others that would dishonor a biblical view of marriage. And you see the main concern for our author? What is it? It's sexual temptation. Adultery, he doesn't stop there. He says adultery and immorality. Meaning, not just unlawful sex while married, but also any sexual sin outside of marriage. One does not have to be married. To defile what's meant by the marriage bed. It all says that God's good design in marriage is not so good after all. It's not worth the wait. It's not purposive. It's not like it's a pulpit for the gospel. Or that God will judge the sexually immoral, as it says, as it says in the text. A high view of marriage will have a constant view of Christ. Cross and city. So that husband and wife unyieldingly love each other. (laughs) Their Love collapses on each other. And singles, that is non-married folks, trustingly defer their desires to the help and to the will of God. Only let Christ be glorified. That's the aim. And it goes on in verses five and six with a focus on contentment. And this is felt all the more when we understand again that this instruction comes under the threat of laws. Again, you go back to chapter 10, this is what's happening in the life of this this particular community. They are being um, threatened because they are identifying with those who are in prison. And they are losing their possessions on account of it. And when that happens, our flesh is most inclined to cling to things more tightly. Or to step back from Christ altogether if only to spare ourselves for a moment. And as that's the case, our author convicts us for a lack of faith in the Word of God. And indeed, even the very blood of Jesus Christ dear ones do we hold confidence in Christ for the hour of hardship we should right God has made the great promise and Jesus has delivered upon it he was forsaken for us you remember on the cross my God my God why have you forsaken Me, he was forsaken for us that God's word, God's promise might be true to us I will never leave nor forsake you so why do we fear when God is our helper if God is with us and God is for us as the cross has made certain who can be victoriously against us. And I want you to notice the goal here. Contentment is missional at the end of the day. Christian contentment is not just about the financial bottom line. It's about being bold as a lion for Jesus. To turn us back from that, the world tries to take our stuff. But we're having God We're freed from idolizing stuff. We can then freely give and or lose all of it and continue again at cost to openly follow Jesus bold as a lion. (laughs) You can't do anything to me. God is with me. One more thing in verse 7. If folks asked us What defines you all as a church? Would you say playing follow the leaders? Love, hospitality, compassion, contentment, marriage, we greatly value that. Yes, 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 and okay. But what about imitation? Now that implies, doesn't it, that we have leaders who are worthy of imitation. Those who not only speak the Word of God to you, but have a life to match every lesson. And here, that union between life and lesson, that union is given a title. He calls it their faith. That's what we're to imitate. The union of message and man in view of the outcome that is promised to that union. And what is the outcome? That lasting city. And so, I just ask you to pray that the leaders here at this church will be worthy of imitation. And as I ask you to pray for that, I'd also ask in light of this instruction from our author, is it part of your long-term discipleship plan to discern what is commendable in your leaders? Because not everything is going to be commendable in your leaders. That's only true of Jesus, but to make it part of your discipleship plan, to discern what is commendable in your leaders and imitate it. Right. May Christ himself give us as a church the, the nearness and the fondness and the godliness that's necessary to that kind of relationship. Okay, very quickly, that is city life for city folk. But now, where that life is lived, there will be challenges. And so we need to talk about city prep, preparation for city life. Uh, The concern here for our author is an enduring faithfulness to Jesus. Not just faithfulness to Jesus, but in enduring faithfulness to Jesus. Dear ones, we need to understand, as the Bible everywhere testifies, that this otherworldly life will draw the ire of this world. And so it will demand of us endurance. And precisely because of that, many will not endure. The call to Christ is a call to the cross And a city. And as Christ increases in us, these two, both the cross and the city, will necessarily follow suit. They will increase with us. The cross will increase and the city will increase. But many, seeing no city, need only see the slightest of the cross. And that is enough for them to shrink. From Jesus. But. They don't then always do away with Christ altogether. What they do. Is try to alter him. And make him more amenable. To their own likings. And preferences. They make little concessions. On Christ. That add up over time. Until there is nothing left. Of Christ to hold on to. Or, having no true footing in heaven, they fall prey to making Him palatable to this world, if only to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Such have counted this world their home. And so no matter their word, no matter what they say, their walk ends up being quite contrary to the biblical Jesus we need to be prepared and preparing one another for city life in this fallen world. And that begins, as it must, by sticking with, you see there in verse 8, the immutable Christ. So, it's rather, rather abrupt to me, but our author writes really one of the, the great verses in the Bible here. Again, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same. Yesterday and today and forever. So, in this verse, we're assured that Jesus never, ever changes. We might say he endures as he is. And we find much of our endurance by faith in that simple truth he never changes. We're conditioned for change by this world. And in fact, to a great degree, we ought to long for a kind of change. We're to be seeking it, as our text is going to tell us. And yet, while we do that, it is actually stability and it is permanence. It is indestructibility that we are seeking. And we grow sick for it because we seek it in a world that is anything but those things. And so what we need is a rock that is fixed for us in heaven. We need one who abides. We need one who is not subject to change, to variation. We need one upon whom we can utterly depend. We need one we can recognize when everything else changes, when everything else goes haywire and gives way or becomes altogether unfamiliar territory so that we just feel lost in the world. We need one. And that one is... Jesus Christ. Dear ones, even those imitation-worthy leaders in verse 7 were impermanent. They're spoken of as if their time on earth has ended. Did you notice that? They've seemingly joined the heavenly host. Perhaps even now, uh, as you hear that, certain faces and names are coming to mind for you they have been impactful for you over the years. But they themselves are gone. They're gone now. And even when they were here, they were subject to wind and to wave, to being driven and tossed about, Lord knows, to fluctuations in devotion and energy and, and care. Which is why, if they did anything right if they did anything well, if they were to major on anything, it was to always direct your hope to one person, and it was not themselves. It was to Jesus. The chief shepherd shepherds you still. Same as he has any of his sheep, from creation to now and on into forever. His person is sure. His presence is sure. His praying is sure. His power is sure. His productivity is sure. Because chapter 7 verse 24, we're told his priesthood is permanent. And that permanency is absolutely sure. He's raised from the dead. And so, even though all the world gives way, What we're seeing here is that Jesus is someone that we can count on. The world may give way, it doesn't alter him in the least. Although, as I implied earlier, people will try to alter him. You see, that's where the text takes us. Christ is not only an immutable person, but our author wants us to understand that he is an immutable doctrine also. Uh, Hebrews is written in large part because folks who do not want to be persecuted for the truth are introducing, what's he say? Strange and diverse teachings into the church, and apparently what is foreign, what is strange to Christ is gaining some nativity with His people. And So our author lays down a very simple rule. He says, be leery, of teachings about Jesus that seem to come out of nowhere, but a man's unsound mind. Stick with the text of Scripture supremely. That's the rule. The doctrine of Christ never changes. Now it can be developed. It can be. Uh, it can undergo development, but in the end, all such development still has to be judged by the doctrine of Scripture, which says that the Bible is. Absolutely authoritative, sufficient, and inerrant. And if uh, whatever the the, the development may be, whatever it is, if it is in any way a stranger to Scripture, open up the garbage can and dump it in there. Now here, the trial case is fairly typical. It's some form of uh, Christianized Judaism, Versus the pure gospel of Christ. Or more simply, it's the age old issue of leaving merit. And believing grace. Or of abandoning a distorted view of the law. For what it always actually intended. And that is faith in the grace of Christ crucified and raised. His advent and all he did in saving us. Fulfilled and effectively ended Moses which Moses, no doubt, we know from the transfiguration, he's like, "Woohoo, Rejoice to see. And so even where the former things were done best, that is with hope in Christ, now that Christ had come and won, those things had been rendered obsolete. So that if they went back to those things, far from enhancing their faith in Christ, they were in danger of missing the point entirely. Which is that for forever, Jesus Christ is. Is enough. And thus, that what we need both for salvation and for striving, seeking, rests in Christ alone. Devotion to food never saved any person's soul never strengthened any person's heart. But the grace of Christ crucified and raised has and does and always will. And so the author compels us, if you mean to endure in city life, you must stick with the immutable Christ. Next, he says, be set apart to the altar of Christ. I was reminded uh, this week, I shared with some of the guys uh, yesterday morning, how early Christians were dubbed atheists by many for the simple fact that their religion was mostly invisible. Meaning they had no temple of which to speak. They had no, no altar. They had no sacrifices. So that outsiders looking in saw no signs of religion as they understood religion. Like verse 10, serving the tent, tending to food, offering and sacrificing animals on an altar. But again, with the advent and gospel of Jesus, all of that changed. It all shifted, it was all eclipsed forever. The writer tells us we, in fact, do have an altar. We have an altar, he says, and we have a sacrifice. And we have offerings to give. But that altar is the cross. And Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. And as we come to Him, we ourselves are being set apart, verse 13, to be living sacrifices. Dead things. (laughs) Living, dying things. Living sacrifices greater than anything that was ever prescribed under the law because that we were the goal. It was that by the blood of Christ, verse 12, that our hearts would be so renewed and perpetually strengthened that we would be dead set on living for Jesus. Beloved, it is not our goal to suffer but neither is it to not suffer. You see? God's always displayed His way to be set against the endorsement of man. The applause of man. Even under the law, the animals sacrificed on the altar had their bodies taken where? Outside the camp. Get out of here. As unholy. And once they were there, they were destroyed. And in being God's sacrifice for sin, so too Jesus was counted unholy by the sinner's standard. And He was taken outside the camp to suffer and then be destroyed. But as He lives, praise God, as He lives, and it was all to a purpose, and that purpose was our coming in to be set apart for holy use, we too now are meant to be willing to stand up for Jesus and stand out for Jesus. Ironically, we're to be up for being counted unholy by sinners if only to be down with Jesus. Let us go to Him, He says, outside the camp. And bear the reproach that he endured. That's wild. Practically, what does that mean? It must mean something really, really radical, right? It means what our text already said at the beginning of the chapter it means loving your church. Unbelievers don't do that. It means loving your church, it means hosting strangers. It means owning our persecuted people. Identifying with them. Having compassion upon them. It means honoring marriage. That's going outside the camp. If you don't believe that, just go Google marriage today. See what comes up. You have a high view of marriage that displays the glory of Christ. You're outside the camp. Being content financially, Imitating your leaders? Who wants to do that? I'm my own self. My own authority. Don't need any imitation. I'm an original. No, you're not. Sort of. Sticking with Jesus when everything's going crazy. Exalting His grace. Each one of those things in their own ways will set you outside the camp of fallen man. Each calls forth identification with the cross, which oddly is precisely where we want to be. (laughs) The comfort is immeasurable to discover that at the place that requires our death, just there we find our life. We don't go outside the camp, you see, without what? What does He say? Coming to Him. Let us go to Him outside the gate. Right? So we we do not go to the cross without going to Him. We don't go to any cross, however big or small, without coming to His altar. And so finding there all the grace that we need to strengthen our hearts for bearing whatever that cross may be. Jesus does not leave us high and dry. He is there. Yesterday And today and forever, the same to hold us fast and nourish us on all the benefits of his sacrifice. There is no cross, I want you to hear, there is no cross we cannot bear because there is no heart he will not feed once there. You are new, he says. You are forgiven, you are holy. You are loved. You are mine. Keep going. (laughs) Keep at it. You are almost home. Stick with the immutable Christ. Be set apart to the altar of Christ. And last, seek the city of Christ. Dear ones, why is it That we live to go out to Him. And how can we keep at it when it does become so very, almost impossibly difficult? The answer is verse 14. Because here we have no lasting city. Let's get it in our our hearts. We have no lasting city here. But we seek the city that is to come. It is critical that we see the relationship between going to Him outside the camp and seeking the city that is to come. Those are one and the same thing. There is no other way to that city than the way of the cross. And to the degree that we seek that city, we will go the way of the cross. We will be living sacrifices. We will walk with Jesus without fearing the repercussions of doing so. Church, perhaps the greatest obstacle to standing in, uh, standing with, standing out for Jesus in this world is attributing to this world a permanence that it does not possess. Demons in love with this present world has deserted us, Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. Do not love the world or the things in the world. It's all passing away, and if you love it, so will you. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. The seed sown on rocky ground tells us of the rootless heart who abandons the word of God just as soon as the world rises up against it. The seed sown among thorns tells us of the heart stuffed with the world's cares and the world's riches and the world's desires so that the word is ultimately choked out. If Moses did only put off the fleeting pleasures of sin by the prospect of a future city, are we going to put off the fleeting pleasures of sin if we're ignorant of it? They are a fool who live for this world. Here, we have no lasting city. Do you want to last? then you got to die. That is, got to go out to Jesus. I know it sounds backwards, but it's actually forward to the city that lasts. This world will be shaken. And it is already being shaken. It's against all sane evidence To live for it. To settle here. That's to believe a lie. It's to hold hands with Lot's wife. It's to scoff at Christ's way in the world. He went from where He came. And will we not seek then to follow Him as if He didn't know where His home was? Dear ones, there is a lasting city to come. And we need, we must seek it. And for that, we need to have it amplified. Because there is no chance at all that we will be enduring the crosses we will need to endure where that city remains only but a whisper. The truth of that city needs to be thundering with us. So, let me just tell you, that city will feature utter freedom even from the presence of sin and death. No more will we face the adversary's weapons. He'll be, he'll be done for. Our souls will be reposed in undisturbed peace with God. Unbroken rest, well, that's what we'll have. From thorn and thistle and guilt and shame and self. That'll be our lot. There we will be eternally relieved from every pang and every doubt of conscience. Conscience. We will, upon arrival, know what's meant by salvation to the uttermost. We will be perfected, he says, in heart when we stand upon Mount Zion. Can you believe that you're going to stand on that mountain one day? Incredible. And once we do, we're going to see with our own eyes the reunion of saints we've known and gone before us. We're going to see the reunion of saints that we will come to know along with all the heavenly beings. Angels, innumerable angels in festal gathering. That's what he says. And above all, beyond the pale of mortal flesh, which keeps us so dim in the present hour, we will see God. And we will see Christ. And we will bask forever in His undiluted grace and mercy. There, we will meet with a full import of His blood. And we will taste of the ever-appetizing fullness of the Holy Spirit's ministry. And we will receive our place of purest, most rewarding service. All this is in Hebrews. And we will never be shaken. Shaken. From any of it. That's the focus of our verse to tell us that of all that we could biblically and still unimaginably believe and expect about this city, it is lasting, <laughs> it is permanent, it is indestructible, it is unfading. It has no end. It is the city, he says earlier, that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God Almighty. Church, the least splendor, the least splendor of that city is infinitely more splendid than the greatest splendor this world has to offer you. And it lasts forever. All of it. Don't you want to be there? Don't you know you already are, in some respects, in Christ? You you know it's real, right? You know it's real. That's why you're a Christian, it's because it's already living inside of you. You were born again from the Jerusalem above. So why don't we just seek it with all our hearts and seek it together? Dear friend, don't taste of it this morning without becoming a part of it. Jesus suffered and died on His cross first and foremost to to bring you to God. And give you a portion in this lasting city. The same Jesus. The same Jesus who saved us lives even now to save you. And so my question for you this morning is, won't you just turn from your sins and trust in this Jesus today? If you want to talk about that after service, I want to make myself available to you. I pray that you will come and speak to me about it. Beloved, this Advent season, uh, we've seen that as our King increases with us, so too will a few things. Rest, devotion, godliness, and just now, forever. And that is a must. That last one is is a must. You'll notice that much of this has to do with a heavenly life. It's really a sliding scale of sorts. Little Christ, lots of worldliness. Lots of Christ, lots of heavenliness. And almost inevitably, hardship with it. And that is why. That is why the city of God cannot be a whisper with us. It holds us fast even as we seek it. And so as we now... Turn the calendar to Christmas. It's as good a time as any to ask ourselves, how great, how loud is the city of Christ with you? Let's pray together. Lord, we love you, and we thank you so much that you loved us first. Please take your word, take the mention however brief, of the city of God and make it to thunder within our hearts in a way that it will never be able to be put out. Help us to put away all the noise, all the things that would distract us or become an obstacle to seeking that city with all that we are. Help us to be a people who love to go outside the camp just to be with you. We thank you for doing it for us. Our whole salvation is in it. May you be praised for it. Amen.